Our reading is going to be in Joshua 4, uh, verses 19 through 24. The people came up out of the Jordan on the tenth day of the first month, and they encamped at Gilgal on the east border of Jericho. And those twelve stones which they took out of the Jordan, Joshua set up at Gilgal. And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, What do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. This is the word of God. Thank you, Jason. Let's pray one more time. Father, thank you for your word. It is life. It is powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. It, it divides soul and spirit, joints and marrow, and it, it discerns our thoughts, our intents. We thank you for that, God. Lord, we pray that your word would do that right now. We pray that it would, it would, that we would be known in your presence by your word and that uh, we know you already know everything about us. So we, wait. we pray that we would know more about us by hearing your word. We thank you for that, Lord. You are a good God. We give you thanks. Lord, I ask as I do each and every week that you would empower me, God, as an as a acknowledged weak vessel, Lord, as one who is prone to often failing, Lord. I pray that you would just equip me, just fill my mouth with your words, Lord God, and, and remove from me any thoughts or words that don't belong to you, God. I pray that you would let everything that I say be productive and fruitful for your church. And God, we, we bless your name. We thank you for your wonderful scriptures this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, hey, it's good to be back. I uh, I didn't know if somebody was going to hand me a visitor card this morning or, or something like that, but I want to say a couple of things. Thank you for letting us go. We've been on a vacation. We, re- we left um, three weeks ago, Monday morning, so tomorrow will be three weeks. Monday morning, we just got back uh, late Friday night, and it was fantastic. We really needed it. We needed the refreshing uh, that was part of that, and so, so grateful that you guys are so generous uh, to let, allow us to have that much time away. And I want to ask you a question as the body here at Northridge Life. How grateful are you for Paul and Sherry Landers? Can I hear you? Come on. Man, I, I tell you, I, I got to hear Paul's uh, messages for the two weeks while I was out of the pulpit, and he just did a fantastic job, didn't he? Just fantastic, and we're so grateful to have him, uh, and uh, and just really grateful to have him on the team. I also want to say thank you to Rochelle this morning. That was fantastic, and your special guest, that was so good. Thank you guys for helping us out. I, I don't want to cause any problems here, but anytime y'all want to come back, you just know the, the door is wide open, the invitation's already there. So... Let's get into the Word. I uh, uh, want to share some things with you a little bit different than what my normal approach. I, I, I practice a, a technique, uh, a technique, I don't know if that's even the right word, but, but a, a, a method of preaching that is, is called expositional, which, which really means that you just take the Word, you take what it says, and you, and you just try to explain what the meaning of the Word is. Now, I'm not going to not do that this morning, but 
something happened. I, I had already kind of selected this passage before I left, that this was what the, the passage that I was going to preach from when I got back. And something happened on our vacation that really just kind of drove that home for me. And I'm going to share some of that with you in just a little bit. So this will be a little bit different um, uh, just because of the heavy uh, reliance on an illustration I want to give you. But this is going to be a little bit different, but I hope that it'll still uh, speak something to you. So let's let's uh, get into this. So Jason read us this passage, and after about 40 years of wandering, as we've talked about before, Israel had now come to the Jordan River. The Jordan River was the border of the Promised Land. And with the river in flood stage, it wasn't just a trickling creek, the river was overflowing its banks, God ordered the priests who carry the Ark of the Covenant into the water. Now, an amazing thing happened. As soon as their feet got wet... As soon as they touched the water, the water all piled up on one side. It stopped flowing, and the people of Israel walked across the river in, in miraculously on dry ground. And it was it was just like it recalled for them the same miracle that happened to them at the Red Sea when they when God parted the waters there and they walked across on dry dry ground. And so here they are, they've crossed the Jordan River, they are preparing to take possession of the new home God has prepared for them. And and, and before they do though, he's given them a final instruction, the last act for them to perform on their journey into the promised land. And, And it's designed to help them remember, to help them so that they will never forget how he sustained them, how he carried them, how he brought them through the wilderness for 40 years into the land of his promise. And here was the instruction. Twelve strong men, one from each tribe, are, are to select a large stone from the, from the now dry riverbed, the Jordan River, right where the priests had stood there with the ark as the people crossed over. And they're to carry these rocks to the other side of the Jordan. They're to pile them up as a memorial to the great saving and delivering power of the Lord on their behalf. And not only, the reason for this is not only so that they'll be able to come back and look at those rocks and remember God's faithfulness, but they'll also be able to point to those rocks and tell their children who wouldn't remember the journey or who haven't even been born yet what happened in that place. And, and so th- this this is a memorial. It's, it's not just so much of an altar, but it's a memorial to say God did something amazing here. Now, over the millennia, of course, the exact location of these 12 stones has been lost. But the point is that God's people were to look back and they were to remember God's faithfulness. So here we are on the tail end of our vacation. Just earlier this week, Ginger and I drove through Selma, Alabama. That may be familiar. The city might be familiar to some of you. But it's where one of the great landmarks to the civil rights struggles of black Americans is located. And that that landmark is called the Edmund Pettus Bridge. If you've ever seen the movie Selma that came out in 2014, you're very familiar with this setting and the events that happened there. Uh, The Edmund Pettus Bridge spans the Alabama River, and it's named after a senior officer in the Confederate Army and a grand dragon of the Ku Klux Klan, still named that. In 1965, Dallas County, Alabama, where Selma is, was approximately 57% African American. 
But voter rolls in Dallas County were 99% white. In order for an African American to register to vote, just to register to vote, a, a, a black person would have to pay a poll tax, an exorbitant poll tax that they probably couldn't afford, they would have to answer complex questions in a so-called literacy test that was more like a college-level social studies test. They would have to uh, have a registered voter, which certainly would have had to been a white person, uh, who certainly was growing up in the racist South, vouch for their moral character. All of those steps before they could just register to vote in Dallas County, Alabama. And these egregious abuses of power got the attention of many civil rights organizations in the 60s. And they decided to press the issue of voting rights in Selma, Alabama. And standing in the way of this was Sheriff Jim Clark. And along with him, the director of the Alabama DPS, a man by the name of Al Lingo. And then way at the top of the ladder was Governor George Wallace. All of these men were notorious racist bullies. And after several demonstrations, peaceful demonstrations that still resulted in, in the demonstrators being beaten, arrested, and even the murder of an unarmed man named Jimmy Lee Jackson, a, a strategy was born for the oppressed people of Selma to march 60 miles to the state capital of Montgomery. And, and the purpose was to draw attention to their plight and take their case right to the doorstep of the governor's office. And they were hoping that the national media would be watching all of this to raise awareness all over the country of the, of the, 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 the criminal things that were going on in Alabama. But on March 7th, 1965, as over 500 black people crossed the Pettus Bridge, They saw on the other side a sea of armed, scowling sheriff's deputies, a a sea of Alabama state troopers, just a massive crowd of, of deputized Sheriff Jim Clark had told every white male over 21, he ordered them to, to report to the courthouse to be deputized. So there's a sea of people waiting to meet them on the other side of the bridge. The, the, the major the, the, who was leading the, the state troopers told them to disperse immediately and they were given two minutes to comply with his order. But 40 seconds later, the mob that had formed at the other side of the bridge rushed the unarmed protesters and began beating them with nightsticks, with whips, when running them down on horseback. And by the way, if you go to Selma, Alabama, Edmund Pettus Bridge on on, uh, YouTube, you can see video. This was all caught by the national media. You can see video of this this actually taking place. Soon, the the Pettus Bridge, after this assault began, was obscured by a choking cloud of tear gas as many of the demonstrators lay bleeding with fractured ribs, with fractured limbs, with fractured skulls. They retreated as fast as they could back to the church where they had gathered that morning, only to be ambushed by Selma City Police on the other side of the bridge. They were literally being kind of squeezed in. And that tragic day became known as Bloody Sunday in the black community. However, if you watch the movie, there's a lot of details that go into this, but the people persevered. They persevered. They, they stayed in the fight. And about two weeks later, they marched through rain 
And they camped in mud until five days after they began, they reached the steps of the Capitol in Montgomery, Alabama. And there on the steps of of the Capitol, with all of the national media watching, Martin Luther King gave a rousing speech to wake up the nation to what was happening in Alabama. And just five months later in August, the city of Selma, I can imagine, rejoiced as President Johnson signed the Voting Rights Act of 1965, giving all people, regardless of race, unencumbered access to the vote. Now, for people of color, many of them, the Edmund Pettus Bridge is almost sacred ground. Why? Because the blood of martyrs in their struggle was spilled there. So as Ginger and I walked across that bridge... In that day, we're very conscious of this and we're, we're, we're thinking of these giants who walked across and the bravery and the courage and we're pondering their story. And as we came over to the other side where the atrocities had begun, we saw an amazing thing. On a simple pile of large granite rocks was etched the passage that we read today. When your children shall ask you in the time to come, saying, what mean these stones? Then you shall tell them how you made it over. Now, I'd already planned to preach from this passage before I left on vacation three weeks ago. And I was stunned. I was stunned at what a great illustration the Lord had just dropped in my lap. Reading this passage a few weeks ago, I wondered... If I had piled any stones for someone to see, for someone to ask about, and therefore learn about the goodness of the Lord, I'm talking about having a testimony. And I want you to know that testimonies do not come through free-flowing blessing and leisurely strolls through the happy times of life. A testimony is given to you through pain, through persecution, through trial, through warfare, and through struggle. They are always costly. They're always costly. I remember when I was a young Christian, I thought that my, my, you know, testimony was kind of weak, and so I prayed that the Lord would give me a testimony. And, And while praying, I'll never forget this, I was probably 16, 17 years old, And while I was praying, God reminded me of what a testimony costs. I thought of some of my Christian heroes of that day. I thought of the Vietnam veteran who chose to praise God even after having half of his face blown off uh, by a phosphorus grenade he was holding. Or the woman who preached from her wheelchair for the rest of her life after being paralyzed for life in a diving accident. I thought of many stories of bold inner city evangelists who were routinely threatened and assaulted for simply carrying the gospel of love and hope into dark places. And suddenly, surprise, a testimony didn't seem so appealing to me. Conviction filled my heart and I realized what I really wanted was fame. What I really wanted was prestige. What I really wanted was recognition. And if God could arrange such a thing, I'd really like to have all those things at no cost whatsoever. 
The book of Hebrews chapter 11, many people call it the faith hall of fame, which is accurate. It lists people who persevered in faith until uh, you know, they, they accomplished what God had set out for them. At the very end of the passage, it describes the type of people who purchased for themselves a testimony. It says some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. But I want you to know, this is, I realize that's heavy, and there's, but there's, you need to know that there's more to having a testimony than just enduring hard times. If that's all it took, everybody would have a testimony. We all endure hard times. Having a testimony means in the face of the hardest times, in the face of the, the, the most seemingly unbearable trials, it means not turning back. Never turning back. Regardless of, as we sang this morning, the many dangers, toils, and snares, it means to fix our faith and our eyes on Jesus in both good times and in bad. 2 Timothy 3.12 couldn't be clearer. It says, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And all the church said, (laughs) Aren't you glad? Where do you sign up for that, right? Where does the line form for that to start? If you ask your average Christian, Do you desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus? The answer is a resounding yes. If you observe them in trials of and persecutions and temptations and things like that, then perhaps you see a different level of enthusiasm. See, hard times in life find us all through first our own sin. Would you agree with that? Anybody ever suffered a little bit for your own sin? You don't have to admit it here. You don't want all these Christians to know you're a sinner. Sometimes hard times come to us, like the people of Selma, through the mistreatment of others. And sometimes it just comes merely by the fact that we live in a fallen world that is absolutely irreparably scarred by depravity. It's inevitable. Hard times are inevitable. And especially so, not also so, but especially so for those who claim Jesus Christ as their Lord. Jesus said, if they they hated me... Guess what? They're going to hate you. Hard times, though, before you kind of just say, man, what a rotten deal it is being a Christian. Hard times are how we're tested. They're how we're refined. They're how we're perfected. They're how we're made holy. In hard times, uh, it's all of our natural reflex to look for alternate routes or to find an escape pod to escape as fast as possible from whatever we're going through. But faith makes us say, faith in Christ makes us say that our destiny is over that bridge. Our faith in Christ makes us say that our destiny is through that river. So we don't spit the bit, we submit. We don't resort to fight or flight, 
we resort to faith. Like poor Job said, none of us have suffered like Job, but like he said, though he slay me, I will hope in him. The key to having a testimony isn't my great performance. It's not my good attitude and my cheery disposition in the face of trial. The key to having a testimony is the fullest confidence I can place in Christ's performance. Knowing that He is the one who parts waters. He is the one who leads me to the land of my testimony, the land of His promise. He went before us to the cross. How many of you would agree with me this morning that the cross is the ultimate hard time? Would you agree with me? And he went to us as the cross. And sometimes we think because Jesus went to the cross, we don't have to. But to do that, you have to have a really poor Christian theology. Because he went to the cross, died in our place, and did so to carve out for us a path to the Father. And he said that now we who choose to follow him are on the exact same path. You remember it. I'm not putting words in Jesus' mouth. He said it himself. He said to them, if anyone would come after me, that's your choice. Would you? Would you not? If you would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Well, where is he going with the cross? He's going to die. It's a cliche in churches, but I want to reemphasize the point that without a cross... There is no crown. You will not slip under the radar into heaven. If you want to be God's child, you must submit your life to whatever He chooses to lead you through. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. And your rod and your staff, they comfort me. But even in this life, so here we have, you know, hard times endured, endured in faith. But even in this life, there's even better news because how many of you experience this to be true? In this life, in the one we're living right now, God answers prayer. Anybody experience that? That's why we sing what a privilege it is. God answers prayer even in this life. God brings deliverance in this life. God rains down mercy all the time even in this life. And when He does, when God brings us through, when God delivers us, when He saves us, it is so important for us to pile up stones so that we can remember and point back to Him and praise God for His faithfulness. It's a troubling fact of modern Christianity that when someone like me asks someone, uh, you know, what has God done for you lately? They have to go, hmm, I don't know. You know why that is? They haven't piled up any stones. God is always moving. God's always working. God's always answering prayer. God's always bringing deliverance. And, And we don't take the time to memorialize those moments, to look at them and say, this is where he did it. This is what he did. So we got to pile up some stones. What are the piles of stones in your Christian life? I broke it down to a few. This isn't exhaustive by any stretch. But do you have in your life sacred 
places. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, like some religions teach that this building is sacred. This building is a building where we meet. The building is made sacred by us, not by the architecture. But do you have sacred places? Here's what I mean by that. I I love, to this day, 30 some odd years later, I love to drive by the building in Midland, Texas, where Jesus Christ found me. I love it. I love to point it out to people. I say, that's where it happened, right there. That's where I became a new man. While we were on our vacation, Ginger took me to a spot in Mississippi that we'd been to several years before. I had completely forgotten about, but where, it was where God answered a prayer for us and, and, and began a breakthrough in our marriage. That's a sacred place to us. Do you have sacred words? Well, of course you do. You have God's scripture that is filled with promise and encouragement and, and words of wisdom. We all have that. But what I'm talking about is that I'm also grateful for words of wisdom, words of encouragement that I've received from you, from brothers and sisters that brought to my life healing and deliverance and comfort when my hurting soul needed it the most. Pile those up. Make them like a pile of rocks that you can point back to and say, this is what God did there. When they said that to me, do you have sacred prayers well you may think all of my prayers are sacred and i would challenge you on that you know if you kind of just say a obligatory god bless this food you know you know and just not even have no heart in that i don't know that i would call that a sacred prayer but maybe you could argue that i'm not but but what i'm talking about is more specifically the times in your life where you can say i stood toe to toe with the devil and yet, in that unenviable position, I trusted in the Lord. That's what I mean when I say that there are sacred prayers. The, the, those times that I hope you've experienced or will experience when there seems to be no way. And yet God carves a highway out in the desert. When you seem to think we are going to starve out here in the wilderness and God rains down manna, that's what I'm talking about. Do you have sacred prayers that you've piled up and you said, look at what God did here. We should mark those places in our memories and we should visit them often. Some of you should or could begin a journal of prayers answered and deliverances wrought by God. And when you begin to pay attention, as I said earlier, you're going to be amazed at how much God is moving, how amazed at how much God is providing, how amazed, how amazed at how much God is speaking in your life just by paying attention. But can I tell you something? Some of you are good at journaling. Some of you would never do that. And I understand But there's something even better than that. Better than journaling. These things, these piles of rocks as I'm calling them. Better than journaling these things for yourself is to repeat them often to others. That's my favorite conversations to have with any of you when you tell me what the Lord has done. I love it. I love it. You should repeat these things often to others, your spouse, your children, your church family, your saved and your unsaved friends. What's going to impress them more about the goodness of God if you tell them how good God is specifically in your life? You should repeat it to your co-workers and even perfect strangers. Let me explain what I'm describing here. To declare openly what the Lord has done and to point to your pile of rocks 
is the very essence of praise. As much as I enjoyed what we did here to, uh, to, today, praise is not essentially singing in church. Praise is when you point to your rocks and you say, look what God did. I will praise him for that. It's all through the Psalms, but let me give you one example of that. Psalm 145, beginning in verse 4, he says, One generation shall commend your works to another and shall declare your mighty acts. What are they doing? They're pointing to rocks. Saying, look what God did. On the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. I will meditate on the works. I won't say, well, hey, that worked out. What a coincidence. I'll say, no, look what God has done. Look what he's worked on the behalf of someone who did not deserve it. But a pile of rocks isn't just for you. But it's so that one generation can commend God's works to another. The rocks, those rocks in Selma, they're going to stand for generations. I mean, they they will be there forever. And and they're there so that when your children ask your fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know. Those piles of stones that I'm telling you to, to build in your life, they serve as an awesome method of multi-generational proclamation. As families, and I'll speak for just a moment, to primarily heads of families, moms and dads, husbands and wives, as families, do we speak openly and often of what the Lord has done? And I mean, do we often take time to point back for our kids to what God has done as well as asking Him to provide for what we need in the future? One thing I notice about myself often is I'm really good about saying, okay, God, this trouble's coming around the bend. I need you to help. But I never take time. It's one of the reasons why we did what we did this morning and giving thanks. I never take time to say, oh, yeah, I remember what you did last week and last month and last year. It's so important to do that. And this has nothing to do, to do that in your family, listen to me carefully, has nothing to do with the age of your children. They are never too young or too old for you to point to the rocks. Never, ever too young or too old. You may be an older mom or dad here and your kids are all grown. Let me just encourage you. They still need you to point to those piles of stones, even if they're brand new piles. Even if you raised your kids in a, in a primarily secular or unchristian way and you have regrets about that now, well, start pointing now. Tell your kids on the phone you wouldn't believe, the 30, 40-year-old kids telling you wouldn't believe what just happened. I, I prayed that the Lord would deliver me here, or provide for me here, and He did. You want to get your kids' attention? Your kids that are grown and maybe not thinking about the Lord, point to some rocks. Point to some rocks. Are y'all hearing me this morning? Your kids need to know that there's a God who loves and answers, who loves you, and who answers prayer, and He carries us through the hardest of times. You need to know how Jesus, your kids rather, need to know how Jesus found you. And they need to know what he's done for you. And what he continues to do for you. And what he means to you. And more than any, they need this more than anything else that you will ever provide for them. No inheritance, no 
big stack of cash will ever replace what I'm encouraging you to do. Nothing. My father is gone. He died in 2006. And one of my deepest regrets that I've expressed often to my wife and to others is that he never told me of any spiritual things that were personally meaningful to him. He took us to church. Over the course of time, we talked about different takes on Scripture. But he never let me know that Jesus genuinely mattered to him or had done anything for him. And I don't want to do that to my kids. And you don't either. Let's pile up some stones. Let me leave you with one last illustration. So we're in Selma. Just parked the car right over by the the Pettus Bridge. And we meet a teacher in Selma who, in the summers, he does this thing where he just tells the story to tourists. He sees you pull up, you got your camera around your neck, and he kind of can identify you real quick. And he he tells a story to tourists who, uh, just for donations, whatever you want to give, he has a youth organization to mentor youth. And and so we thought that was a pretty good idea. And we we, uh, sat down and heard his story. His name was Columbus. And Columbus told us that when he was 13, he asked his Uncle Willie. Uncle Willie had marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. It took three marches, two unsuccessful, and the third one that they got to Montgomery. He marched in all three marches. And he had marched on the Edmund Pettus Bridge. uh, And he, and, uh, he asked him, Columbus asked Uncle Willie, if the name Bloody Sunday was accurate or if it was exaggerated for PR purposes. And he said, just in the asking of the question, Willie's eyes began to well with tears. He told this young man how on the bridge that day, he could hear bones of his friends breaking under the the hooves of horses. And he saw as he was running for his life, rivulets of blood running down the river. It's kind of on a slope, and he just said that, that, that running down the bridge rather. He said that he heard the cries of men and women and he looked around him and saw those who had been beaten completely unconscious. And Willie told him in the end of the story what it meant to be able through such incredible hardship to be able to participate democratically and how he would never ever until his dying day take it for granted. We all wear those little I voted stickers. Well, that meant a whole lot more to Willie. A whole lot more. See, what was Willie doing there? Willie was piling rocks for a young man who had not personally known the struggle. But because Willie took time to pile some rocks, he could now appreciate what the suffering of others had bought for him. It instilled courage in Columbus to keep fighting for what is right, no matter what the cost. Willie's testimony means that though Willie is gone... Columbus now gets to see what he saw. And that is the power of piling rocks and pointing to them often, saying, look what the Lord has done. If you would stand with me. It is our great privilege that the Lord has delivered to us a great memorial.
not a person living on the earth today, as absurd as this obviously is, that was at the foot of the cross, seeing him bleed through his broken body for the sins of man. No one saw that. That's alive today, of course. It happened over 2,000 years ago. But Jesus had the foresight on the night before he was crucified to take bread and wine and to say, this is my body broken for you. This cup is my blood that is poured out for the for you, for the forgiveness of many sins. That's what Jesus left us. He, he left us a pile of rocks so that we could come together every single Sunday, every time we gather and say, look. So when our kids come to these tables and say, what does this mean? We can say, this is where the Lord delivered us. This is where he made a way across a river we couldn't cross. This is where he set us free from slavery. This is where he set us free from bondage. This is where he set us free from death and the devil. This is where he set us free. Look, look at this pile and remember. Remember. Paul writes to the church. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Father, holding a a tiny piece of bread, we look back to the memorial that your son has left for us. And we say, thank you. Thank you that you were broken. Thank you that you you were shattered that we might be whole. We thank you for that, Lord. Lord, make us holy. Make us holy and bring us back together from our own brokenness, Lord, by your brokenness. We ask this in Jesus' name. Let's take the bread together. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the blood of your son, Jesus, that washes us white as snow. Thank you that you've given us this supper, this cup, to remember. God, when we go through weeks that we don't feel cleansed, Lord God, because of our own struggles With our fallen nature, Lord, we thank you that this cup reminds us that we are clean through the word that you have spoken, through the blood that you have shed. We thank you for that, Lord. Help us to always remember, to point back to this memorial and remember with grateful hearts what you have done. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you would, place your hands in a receiving position. I want to speak a benediction over you. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. You're dismissed.